Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. In this week's edition, we're discussing National Park Lodges with David and Kay Scott, authors of the Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges, now in its eighth edition. We also reached out to Marcia Argus at the Pew Charitable Trust's Restore America's Parks Initiative for an update on congressional efforts to whittle away the nearly $12 billion maintenance backlog across the national park system. Today I'm with David and Kay Scott, the authors of The Complete Guide to National Park Lodges. It's one of the roughest jobs out there in the national park system. For the past 20 years, they've been forced to travel across the country and and stay in and study national park lodges. David and Kay, it's great to have you here today. Good to be with you. Thank you. Finally, good to talk with you after all these years of just writing for your website. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, 21st century technology has kind of uh, changed how we communicate across uh, the universe. It has. We're a little slow down here in South Georgia, so (laughs) we'll try to catch up. There you go. There you go. Now, um, how many editions? I've got at least uh, edition number eight of this book. The the eighth edition just came out uh, last year. So the ninth the ninth edition. Excuse me. Just came out last year, so we're excited about that, that they allow us to continue to update them, which we love. So we usually do this about every three years, and we'll try to visit most of the lodges in between uh, in between editions to get new information. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, since you've been doing this, um, there have been a, a few lodges have opened and uh, a few lodges have closed. And so that was one thing I wanted to talk about was um, how many lodges have disappeared since you started doing this? Quite a few. Then two of our favorites on the Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, Bluffs Lodge and Rocky Knob Cabins uh, have closed. I think they closed in 2000. Bluffs closed in 2010. I think that maybe that was its last season. And and Rocky Knob Cabins uh, a year later. They uh, were two of our favorite places, but they're quite small. And uh, one bluffs had only 24 guest rooms, and Rocky Knob Cabins had only seven uh, cabins. And as a result, they had great difficulty trying to um, attract a concessionaire to run the lodges. And they've been closed now for years, and I don't anticipate uh, they'll come back online. So those are two of the lodges that have closed. Okay, how about some others? Well, they've uh, taken some down, like in uh, Yellowstone. They took down cabins and put up new lodges. Uh, They also, the old snow lodge that was only used in the winter, uh, they took that down and built a brand new one, which is used year-round now. Um, Those are a couple that I think of offhand. There was an area in Sequoia, they tore the whole thing down because the buildings were sitting on the roots of the sequoia trees. so That was Giant Forest Lodge. Yeah. And that's gone, and, and then uh, they put a new one up north of there called Wasatchee Lodge, and it's, it's much nicer than the old uh, Giant Forest. I think the concessionaires and the Park Service weren't taking care of it because they knew uh, they were going to raise the, the buildings, and so they didn't want to put more money in it. 
So a few lodges have disappeared and some new ones have come on the scene. And I guess that's probably to be expected. Now, now going back to the, the Bluffs Lodge and uh, Rocky Knob Cabins, I, I know Bluffs has had a problem with, uh, I guess, mold, a very dangerous type of mold in there. And uh, the um, Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation has been doing a great job in raising money to, to try and refurbish some of that stuff. And I know they've, they've tackled the coffee shop there, which is uh, a favorite of yours. Um, yeah. Do you think, are, are they going to take down uh, the cabins at Rocky Knob, or are they just sitting there vacant, and the same with uh, the Bluffs uh, Lodge? No, I think what they, they would like to convert them into some kind of a, of a uh, like a Boy Scout camp or some kind of conservation camp that people can go to, but it wouldn't be like it was before where people could drive the Blue Ridge Parkway and, and book a room there overnight. So it would be more for larger groups that would want to come in. The, the cabins, only one cabin had an uh, indoor bathroom. The other cabins, had, guests had to use a common uh, community bathroom. And uh, people, not a lot of people anymore. don't care for that anymore. They were, they were inexpensive, and we always enjoyed our stays there. But I think they'll find a use for that. At Bluffs, I think, is going to be an expensive proposition for them. It is. And even if they, I, I think the problem is a concessionaire doesn't want to come in and spend a bunch of money on the lodge, and then, especially if there are only 24 rooms there. So if the National Park Service could raise enough money to bring them up to standard, they might be able to find a concessionaire. But whether that'll be the case or not, I really don't yeah. know. They spent a lot of money, I'm sure, on the roof. They put a brand new roof on it, but uh, the mold and stuff you can see, we, we would stop and walk around it even though it's closed, and the mold on the doors is on the outside is pretty bad. I can't imagine what it would be on the inside. Yeah, yeah. You know, those places um, hold charm that um, we seem to be losing in the um, the, the large concessionaire approach to, to building a Sometimes they're motel-style lodgings and whatnot. And, you know, is there no longer a place for these smaller operations? Or, you know, certainly the, the international concessionaires may not want to get involved with them. But, um, you know, you've got the Pisgah Inn, which, uh, you know, that's a, a relatively small operation. And yet he seems to be doing a great job. He does. Bruce O'Connell is the, <laughs> is the manager there. He's quite a fellow. He's an enterprising fellow. Right. And uh, he does. He really does a good job there. He, and he works well with the superintendent. I think that's that's a major key too. He, yeah, and I I think he's he's um, you know he, he he's a he's a hard worker and he knows what people like and he really appreciates guest comments and uh, he solicits guest inf guest uh, comments about his place. So he's, he's done a good job there. And that, I think it was the only place maybe on the Blue Ridge Parkway that was actually making a go of it. A Peaks of Otter Lodge at the north end of the parkway, they had some difficulty finding a concessionaire for that lodge until uh, Delaware North, which runs the Shenandoah Lodges, uh, took it on. But I think that was becoming a questionable lodge mm -hmm. also. Is it something that um, perhaps the Park Service should have done a, a, a better job in maintaining these facilities? I know it's a, a tough balancing act between what you can expect from a concessionaire to do and what the Park Service should be doing. That's right. And I think that the, 
the Park Service was strapped for funds, and I don't think they had the money to uh, keep bluffs up yeah. or Rocky Knob cabins. In any case, I, I think when we used to stay at Rocky Knob cabins, when we would leave, we would talk about there's no way that place can stay afloat with seven rooms, and right. they were charging about $60 a night. <laughs> and so if you figured they were full every night for the season, they still couldn't have made a go couldn't even it. pay the one employee they that couldn't was there. Have, yeah right. so that was you know unless somebody wanted to contribute the majority of the costs of keeping that open uh that was uh, i think a lost cause that's too bad um yes. now you mentioned um renovations and whatnot and um people want indoor plumbing you look at Yellowstone National Park, and um, you've got the Tower Lodge and its facilities, which certainly are rustic compared to the uh, Lake Hotel and uh, and now the new Canyon Lodge. Uh, have you heard any rumblings on what might happen to Tower Lodge? Is it going to remain the way it is, or are we going to see some improvements there? Are you thinking of Roosevelt? I'm sorry, Roosevelt Lodge. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, actually, Roosevelt is full almost all the time. Um, it's hard to get a reservation at Roosevelt because people really like those little cabins. And you're right, there are very few of them have um, private bathrooms, only the handicap accessible. And so there might be six or eight, I can't remember, and the rest share uh, community bathrooms. But evidently, that's quite popular. So I doubt that um, they keep them up. And so we always say that they look better once you get inside. They're better than what they look like from the outside. But um, I I don't think that there's anything in the works right now for Roosevelt. They are working on um, Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel. That one um, had some rooms without baths in the hotel, and they're working on it now to reconfigure it so all the rooms in the hotel will have baths. And I think that's supposed to open in... Uh... August, I toward the end of August, I right. think Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel is supposed to open. They made some major changes there. They moved the administrative offices out of the hotel, and they have now have meeting rooms on the second floor. So uh, that is also uh, being modernized. Uh, Dantera spent a lot of money in in uh, Yellowstone National Park, which is one of the reasons I think they got a twenty year contract there. The I think they spent uh, $90 million on the new lodges at, at Canyon. I agree with you about the new lodges don't have the same feel as the old lodges. They seem kind of sterile, and that's true with John Muir Lodge in Kings Canyon and, in, and to a lesser extent with Wasatchee Lodge in Sequoia. They don't have the charm of the old buildings, but I think maybe you and I and Kay, um, don't feel the same way about lodges that a lot of younger people do that are used to more modern facilities and, and nicer facilities also. Well, another thing we found when both at John Muir Lodge and places that have big lobbies where you can gather, in the years past, we would sit by the fireplace and chat with all the other guests that would come down. And probably the last time, um, oh, say five years ago, as we started traveling more, we saw it happen more and more. People might gather, but they were on their phones. They were on the Internet. They weren't chatting with each other. And 
we, you know, each park we'd go to, we'd see it more and more, and that's the way it is nowadays. They actually, it's kind the, of the, sad. The day before they had Wi-Fi, it's a whole different, whole different life now yeah. than than it was 20 years ago when we were traveling. You know, whenever we write about lodging on National Parks Traveler, um, we get a lot of comments about the price of lodging in the National Park System. Being located in, in Park City, Utah, I'm, I'm fortunate, I guess, that I can get up to Yellowstone um, four times a year. And so to, to me, the the cost of a room, you know, two or $300 a night seems exorbitant, but perhaps for somebody who's doing a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Yellowstone National Park, that's just um, part of the package that they're willing to pay for. But are, are we seeing pricing get out of control, perhaps? I mean, at Yellowstone, they're, they're doing this pilot program for five years where the concessionaire can take roughly half of the lodging in the park and let the market decide what the rates will be. Well, they did that mainly because of the money that Zantera put into those those new lodges with the $90 million that was to help them get some of that money back. But um, other parks like Glacier um, have such a short season that that might be part of the reason. Yosemite is one that's always amazed us, and I guess it's because it's in California, and California can demand those prices. but Yosemite prices have always been high. The uh, tents in, in uh, well, what used to be Curry Village, Half Dome Village now, the tents are over $100 a night. The, can- th- the canvas tents. I think they were $141, $141 a night when we checked. Uh-huh. But they, they also, I mean, they've lost they've housing lost, to yeah. floods and rock slides. And, and it's expensive. it's expensive to get things done where many of these park lodges are located. They're in isolated locations. And to get major work done has to be pretty expensive. But I agree with you about the cost of the rooms. The cost of the rooms for many people, they're priced out of a lot of the lodging. And it's too bad. And But on the other hand, I'm not sure that it's the government's job to, to subsidize lodging uh, for people. I guess that would be a matter of opinion. But the lodging costs have gone up a great deal, and they went up a great deal in Yellowstone, due in part to all the money that's being spent in there. Well, and one thing that the superintendent had them do, when they built those five new lodges in Canyon, they have, gosh, David, how many rooms? Ten rooms in each building? Something like that, that are smaller, that are much less expensive. They were 145 a night when we were... Compared there. to like 265 or but something But they were like small, that. could handle two people. Right. But, uh, no more than that. They were in, in the top floor of all the, each of the new lodges. And there was some discussion, believe it or not, about putting rooms in those lodges without private bathrooms and keeping the cost low. Mm-hmm. But I think the concessionaires have find it's increasingly difficult to sell people rooms without a private bathroom. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Do you know off the top of your head the the price of uh, one of the cabins at uh, Roosevelt Lodge? Oh, gosh, I don't. You know, we just looked that up the other day, and we've got it on a sheet of paper somewhere because we were going to do a study on the cost of lodging. Is it safe to say that those might be the the cheapest cheapest rooms or the least expensive? Oh, I think so. Those those would be among the least expensive rooms. Let's see, we got the Grand Canyon, Mesa Verde, Blue River. 
Yellowstone, Roosevelt Pioneer Cabins. Uh, when we were there in, in 1999, that was 20 years ago, I guess, huh? Roosevelt, I've got Roosevelt Pioneer Cabins were $77. Now they're 100, I've got a price of $101 for the Roosevelt Pioneer Cabins without a private bath. But <laughs> not, not right. too terribly bad over 20 years. No, but the Old Faithful Inn, uh, we had a price in 99 of from 105 to 142, and now they're 239 to 327. So they've just about tripled during prime time. Wow. Wow. It's a tough... Uh... A tough situation because, as you point out, you know, it's often a short season. They're in remote locations, and the, the weather is usually harsh. And so not only do you have to maintain these facilities, but you have a, a short uh, tourist season to, to make your, uh, your revenue in. But at the same time, it seems that there's threat of pricing some segments of society out of these, uh, these park lodges. There's no question. Uh, and, of course, I don't think they overpay most of the help there. They have... A- bunch of kids working, and they're, I'm sure they're making minimum wage, would be my guess. What young families have to do anymore is kind of like while David and I started, is camping. So they do have the campground still, of course, and the camping, the prices are reasonable. I mean, it's not like 3 and $5 like we originally paid, but um, it's still uh, affordable for a family, I think. Yeah, it's not too bad if you can, if you can snag a campsite. You know, it wasn't too many years ago that the the former director of the Park Service, John Jarvis, told me that uh, there was concern that the parks were losing relevancy with the American public. And um, ever since the uh, centennial of the Park Service in 2016, we've just seen the crowds growing and growing and growing, which is a good thing. But uh, it does make it hard at times to uh, get that campground unless campsite, unless you're one of the first ones online uh, six months out. There's no yeah. question that the, some of the parks have really become uh, quite crowded. And last year we were in, we stopped for a, a day at Zion and uh, oh we circled gosh. the park, parking lot for a couple of times before we could center. find a vacant mm-hmm. space. The visitor center was jammed and uh, the highway was pretty much bumper to bumper through the park. What, what are your favorite lodges at across the park system? Uh, Benton Bluffs and Rocky Knob? Well, probably, I mean, for me, it has to be um, the Awani, which which was the Awani. It's now the what is it now? Majestic Yosemite, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is Majestic Yosemite. That is just. I mean, it was built to be expensive. It was built to attract uh, the wealthy people from back east to come out. But it is it is lovely. It's beautiful. So as far as something like that, that's that's my favorite. But. There are some little cabins that I, I thoroughly enjoy also. Several of the cabins in uh, Yellowstone are quite nice and comfortable. So. We always, our favorite hotel in Yellowstone was always Lake Hotel. Lake Hotel. And that was before they did the renovations and the prices went up so much. It, it's become a very expensive place to stay, but we always love that area of the park. And, and the Old Faithful area is so... There's there's so many people there, and if you stay at Old Faithful Inn, there's so many people browsing through the lobby all day long from morning till early evening. The lake area is not like that at all, and it's it's quiet. It's it's on a beautiful lake, has a beautiful setting, and at night they have a string quartet that plays, and um, it's really a nice place. And 
my favorite lodges are in Glacier. I, I like the old railroad lodges. I, uh, Glacier Park Lodge, just sitting at night, at night sitting in the lobby of Glacier Park Lodge. It, it's uh, it, the lobby is the, one of the most magnificent places in the in the Park Service, I think. So we like that. And, and Mini Glacier and fits right in there too. Sure. It does. Mini Glacier has been redone, and the the setting of Mini Glacier Lot Hotel in that park is probably the most magnificent setting in no, any national park, mm -hmm. uh, any lodge in any national park. We really like those. Have you been back to Many Glaciers since they finished the uh, the stairwell? No, we no. haven't. Um, they were, it was closed the last time we were there. And so we got to, you know, at least see what they were doing. But we've seen pictures of it, but we have, and your pictures, I think, uh -huh. but have not, uh, haven't been there yet. No, that, we were really surprised when they told us they were going to do that. Yeah, and I, I think the Park Service paid for all those renovations. Is, is that was that your understanding, rather than the concessionaire? You know, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'm not either, but they spent a lot of money on Many Glacier, and that's always one of the more difficult lodges to get where you to get a room. It it fills up, and it, when you go there and stay there, you understand why the. It's it's just a magnificent place to be. But then on the other hand, at, at Glacier Park Lodge, where they have all the flowers out in front, the Amtrak station across the road, that's also go to Seattle, ride a train, get off at uh, Glacier Park Lodge, stay a couple nights, and then go back go back through the mountains. That'd be a, a good week-long trip for anybody. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I seem to recall that uh, over the years you've... Uh... Uh, spoken and written quite highly of uh, the Big Spring Lodge at uh, Ozark uh, National Scenic Riverways. We've stayed there a couple of times. Right. In fact, it has been closed for the last two, if not three years. And when I called them to see, they were going to do renovations on the foundations and just bring them a little more up to date, although they're really neat buildings built by the CCC and, and then somewhere the WPA. Um, and I talked to the Park Service person, and they said, well, no, they haven't been able to get in and do them yet or haven't had the money to do them. So they'll be closed at least for another year, if not more. Nice so I don't know so, when those will yeah, be open. But yeah. that's a, that also is a nice, quiet park. And they had a, a nice little dining room uh, lodge also built by the CCC. So that was a, really a pleasant place to stay. We never stayed there in the fall that that would be the prime time to With go and it would be a great place to great place to uh, stay i think i have to tell you about another new one the presidio in san francisco the um, presidio trust has done a wonderful job converting one of the barracks into a lodge that just opened in august or i guess it was earlier than august this year this past year in 18 and then uh, in tw in 2012, they opened the inn at the Presidio, and they have done a marvelous job on those buildings. And it's just uh, a wonderful place to be. It's it's a pretty area, uh, lots to see and do. When you're at the lodge, the back door is the Golden Gate Bridge, so so wow. you can sit out by a fireplace and just admire the Golden Gate Bridge. So and those really rooms run. Oh, the oh, cheapest room yeah. would be in the I think two fifty or two sixty, but they have just a couple of those, and those prices run from three to four hundred dollars in those two facilities. Although San Francisco is a very expensive place to stay in, in any case, 
And the one advantage there is if you have your own car, parking's cheap. It's only $9. A night. <laughs> Downtown, it can be $40, $50. Right. And the one nice thing also at both the lodge and the inn is it's a full, nice breakfast. And they also have an evening manager's reception with wine. I can't remember. Do they have beer, David, or just wine? Uh, I drink wine. I can't remember if they had beer. beer last time or not. But they <laughs> but also wine, have, cheese, and crackers. They also have a, nice. have a free shuttle into, the, into town. Yes. And another free shuttle that goes all around the Presidio, including uh, with a stop at the Golden Gate Bridge. So uh, it's an it's a great place to stay uh, if if you're in for town for a vacation. Uh-huh. Yeah, it sounds interesting. So looking ahead to the the next edition of your book, uh, the complete guide to the National Park Lodges. Any surprises are just going to be be updating. I think mostly we'll be updating. We'll have to add the lodge of the Presidio. That that'll be a new addition. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've. We've continued to carry Bluffs a Lodge, uh, saying it was closed, but with the hopes that it would open. But I don't see much possibility of that. But uh, we'll call the Park Service and try to get some input before. A couple of editions ago, we called and asked if we should take Rocky Knob Cabins out. And the concession specialist there told us, yes, that'd probably be a good idea. So she didn't have any hopes that it would reopen, I don't think, as a Lodge. And I'm not sure about Bluffs. The longer it goes, the more difficult it's going to get to do anything with the building, I'm afraid, which is a real loss, by the way. The Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, we must have driven the Blue Ridge Parkway eight times, from almost always from south to north, and I... I've ne- we never get tired of it. It's it's one of the it's outstanding drive. drives in the country. And uh, having those four lodges there, and then you connect with Shenandoah National Park, where they have three lodges toward the north end of the park, is a perfect vacation, I think. Uh, the lodges normally were not too expensive, not like the western parks. And uh, the scenery is just outstanding, either in the spring or the fall is, is the big time there. But the Blue Ridge Parkway is one of the outstanding parks in the country, I think. Yeah. We like them all. <laughs> yeah. Well, David and Kay, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to chat with me today about park lodging. And uh, we'll have to get back together um, down the road and, and maybe talk about you know a specific park. Like you said, uh, Shenandoah has several uh, lodges where folks can stay. And of course, Yellowstone and Yosemite do too. And so maybe we should just focus in on one park and look at their lodgings uh, in, in that specific park. But uh, that'll have to be for our next time. I appreciate well, yeah. your time today. Thank okay. you. It'd be great Thank on you Yellowstone. Us. Nine lodges in Yellowstone, they're all very different. So another time, we'll talk with you, Kurt. That sounds good. Well, thank you very much. The national parks are here for all of us. A truly American idea dependent on the support of people like you. The National Park Foundation works in the parks you love to protect them for the next generation. Through the Foundation's programs, trails in the National Park System are maintained, ocean resources and their marine life are protected, and philanthropic dollars are raised to help support park managers make ends meet. See how you can support the National Parks by visiting nationalparks.org. (laughs) 
Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Last year, National Parks Traveler conducted a months-long series of stories on the maintenance backlog in the National Park System, thanks to um, some underwriting support from Pew Charitable Trusts. We looked at the impact on not just the visitors, but also how the maintenance backlog was affecting National Park Service staff and basically wearing out some areas of the National Park System. There was legislation introduced last uh, Congress to try and uh, come up with $6.5 billion to address the maintenance backlog over a five-year period, but unfortunately that measure died at the end of the last Congress. It recently was reintroduced in both the House and the Senate, and uh, we reached out to Marsha Argist with the uh, Pew Charitable Trust's Restore America's Parks Initiative to get an update on the prospects of that measure. Hi, Marsha. I was wondering if you could tell us, is this the exact same version of legislation that was introduced in the 115th Congress? Hi, Kurt. The legislation was reintroduced recently in both the House and the Senate. The version that was reintroduced in the House is identical to last Congress. The version that was reintroduced in the Senate is a little bit different. It is the version that was amended when the bill was uh, passed out of committee last fall. And what was that amendment? Uh, how did that affect it? There were several amendments uh, that were brought up by Senators Barrasso and Lee. Most of them had to do with reporting requirements, requiring the National Park Service to do cost-benefit analysis on the deferred maintenance projects, issues of that type. Oh, that's interesting. There, there weren't any um, so-called poison pills attached to it last year, were there? And, and, and by that, I mean amendments that the majority of the Senate or the House might object to, such as, uh, I know Utah, the congressional delegation, is concerned about Presidents establishing uh, national monuments, and uh, in Wyoming years ago, decades ago, they passed uh, legislation that national monuments could not be established in Wyoming without, I believe, the the governor and the the congressional delegation's approval. We haven't seen anything like that attached to this bill, have we? No, the the amendments during the Senate markup, I wouldn't refer to them as poison pills, but I do think they were. Not necessary. Some of them had to do with GAO reports, which you don't need legislation to require a GAO report. I also think they really put an undue burden on the Park Service. The Park Service is already overburdened with not enough resources. So having amendments that are requiring them to do more reporting, to do cost-benefit analysis on every single deferred maintenance project, you know, that's pretty darn onerous. Uh, and especially if you're not giving them additional resources to do that. So at some point, you know, we want to see those amendments uh, taken out of the legislation. 
Are you optimistic that uh, that will be possible? Uh, yes, I think that could be done in conference. It could be addressed down the road. I think the sponsors are interested in that as well, or modifying the language somewhat. Does uh, the measure have to go through the whole process from, from start, you know, through committee meetings and whatnot, or will it uh, go right to the, the floor of the House and the Senate? So in the Senate, the reason the legislation was introduced as it uh, was approved out of committee last year is that it can bypass hearings again, and it can be uh, taken up in the Energy and Natural Resources Committee at its first business meeting this year. Mm -hmm. um, and so it will be able to skip some procedural hearings. If it was reintroduced without those amendments, it would have to go through some of the same procedural hurdles again. So in the interest of time, the sponsors decided that, you know, it would be best to reintroduce the same version that was approved last year and then take care of the uh, amended language down the road. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. That said, we just, uh, we're a month into the new session. Um, any idea how long it might take before um, both chambers vote on a final version? That I cannot answer. I, I think we're hopeful that a Senate markup uh, in committee uh, will happen in fairly short order in the House and in, in committee. You know, I, I think they may be having some oversight hearings on this issue down the road as far as, you know, House and, and Senate floor action on the issue that's harder to predict. Mm -hmm. As you probably know, there's going to be, we expect a floor vote in the House soon on a large um, public lands package. So that'll be wrapping up some unfinished business from last year. And then there's going to be significant pressure from groups to take up this unfinished business. And the, the public lands measure you mentioned in the House, that's the one that passed the, the Senate just recently, correct? Correct, yep. And that passed overwhelmingly in the Senate, as I recall. It did, yes. I I think it was 93 was to something. Yeah, I can't recall offhand. Yeah, yeah, I think it might have been 92 to 8. Now, what, what's interesting, I mean, you look at that uh, measure and it was uh, broadly uh, supported by both uh, sides of the aisle in the Senate. And uh, this legislation, Restore uh, Our Parks legislation, also has strong bipartisan support, no? It does, yes. Um, overwhelming support uh, in the House. It has the support of over half of all members. Um, in the Senate, it's over one-third of members that support the legislation. In addition, the president supports this legislation, OMB, and the Department of Interior. So that's, that's pretty amazing in this atmosphere. That being said, any idea why it seems so difficult to pass legislation to provide a, a better uh, a funnel of money for the parks to, to address this maintenance backlog? Well, it has to do with the Budget Act. The bill has a $6.5 billion price tag. Um, well, it does have a revenue stream, if, and that revenue stream is not dependent on taxes. But when you are taking money uh, out of the U.S. Treasury, you need either a budget waiver or offsets. Mm -hmm. So there was not time last year to 
come up with offsets that are considered non-controversial. In the House, you had a speaker that was pretty adamant against mandatory spending. So um, I, I think that's what the obstacle was last year in the time frame we have. I think we have a, a much more uh, flexible situation this Congress that bodes well for the progress of this legislation. We have a House that I think, uh, while they're still operating under Budget Act rules, there is some more flexibility. There is also significant discussion about moving a national infrastructure package. This legislation could very well be wrapped into an infrastructure package. Mm-hmm. Many provisions that we're talking about uh, that, that need, or I should say, many assets in the National Park Service that need to be repaired are clearly related to infrastructure, whether it's roads, trails, uh, visitor centers, seawalls, campgrounds. So there's a very good case for including parts of the Restore Parks Acts in an infrastructure package. Yeah, I think uh, we just had a story uh, earlier this week about the uh, Lewis River Bridge in um, Yellowstone National Park. And the uh, Park Service has uh, approved plans to um, replace the bridge. But um, there's always that caveat when funding is available. And I'm sure there's many situations like that across the park system where they the Park Service would like to repair or replace uh, ailing infrastructure, but the money just hasn't been available. Yeah, that's an important caveat. <laughs> <laughs> Always seems that way. Speaking of budget numbers, I mean, we, we talk about the uh, the maintenance backlog and $11.6 billion or nearly $12 billion. Are those uh, the numbers we're still largely working with? They are. You know, I would expect that the Park Service should be releasing updated figures soon, the FY 2018 figures. Typically, they release them around this time of year. So we'll need to see if the the deferred maintenance figure has gone up. Yeah, I I expect uh, it has. That is my guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and what folks need to understand, um, you know, we've been lucky to see that appropriations accounts for deferred maintenance have increased over the last three years or so. And Mm -hmm. I think um, in part that's due to the awareness of the needs for park repairs and that that park facilities, you know, are aging. And when facilities are aging, they tend to deteriorate and they need to, to have repairs and fixes. So Seeing an increase in appropriations is fantastic, but it's not enough. And it also takes a while to see an effect of those increases. You need the time, the Park Service staff need the time to put in the planning and design to take care of some of those larger multi-million dollar projects before we will see a big decrease in the backlog figure. Yeah, a lot of that planning takes a long time. I know out at uh, Death Valley National Park with uh, Scotty's Castle um, that was uh, pretty devastated by a flood uh, a number of years back. They they still haven't finished uh, making the necessary repairs, and uh, I don't think it'll be fully open before next year, 2020. So uh, it takes time to get those uh, uh, studies uh, and, and plans finished and finalized and approved. And then, of course, more time to get the money from Congress to pay for it. 
Yeah, and that's exactly why this legislation is so important because it's, you know, not year by year and it will give the Park Service some certainty that they can have a number of years with consistent funding coming in that they can rely on to do these long-term multi-million dollar repairs. All right, Marsha Argus, she directs the uh, Restore America's Parks Initiative for the Pew Charitable Trust. Marsha, I appreciate your time today, and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up uh, in the months to come to see how this legislation is moving. Thanks, Kurt. Hear them before you see them. The roar, the whoosh, the crash. And when you see them, you just stand and marvel. They are the waterfalls of Yosemite National Park, and they leap from some of the most magnificent granite cliffs in the world. Rock monuments called El Capitan, Half Dome, and Glacier Point. But you don't need to stay in a crowded lodge during your Yosemite vacation. Yosemite's Scenic Wonders Vacation Rentals is the choice for people who want a great value for their Yosemite accommodations. Scenic Wonders offers beautiful homes located away from the more congested tourist spots to keep your stay feeling uninterrupted and memorable. Visit them at scenicwonders.com. As our kayaks bobbed on the currents of Fingers Bay, a multi-fingered bite in Glacier Bay, we listened for the telltale streaming whoosh of a humpback whale's spout. We had seen the wispy spray moments earlier as we neared the mouth of the small bay and watched as the whale circled, its occasional spouting marking its progress. With the weather closing in, ashy grays muting the green hues of the Sitka spruce forests that descend the mountain's flanks out of the clouds, we waited. Foggy tendrils crawled through the forest down to the water, merging landscape and seascape. Far across the water, rafts of teal, green-winged and possibly cinnamon, cruised along the shoreline. All around us, harbor porpoises, nature's truly synchronized swimmers, circled, rolling their backs in unison above the bay's surface. And out near the mouth of this small bay, curious harbor seals eyed us. For many of us, visits to faraway national parks rightfully deserve the distinction as a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. That was the case for my wife and I when we traveled to Glacier Bay National Park in Alaska and spent a week on a converted and beautifully restored World War II minesweeper called the Sea Wolf. Most visitors to this national park head to Gustavus and the Glacier Bay Lodge, where they typically spend two or three days. It's time usually spent looking at Bartlett Cove hiking a trail or two, and taking a day cruise to enjoy the park's wildlife and glaciers before heading somewhere else. To go beyond that first blush introduction, you must leave Gustavus behind and venture deeper into the park. For the experienced and the hardy, that might entail setting off on a self-organized or outfitted kayak trip deep into the glacier bay. For the truly adventurous and self-reliant, a pack on the back, good hiking boots, and accurate maps are enough to venture into the backcountry. While massive cruise ships also head deep into the park, the discriminating explorer of national parks 
might be enticed by a smaller, more sophisticated and intimate approach aboard one of the small ship operations that offer multi-day voyages into Glacier Bay. During our week at Glacier Bay, a week of hikes and kayaking, we passed through a succession of landscapes, from the head of Glacier Bay, where glaciers have scraped the rock bare of soils and vegetation, down to the lush rainforests that have reclaimed lands near Bartlett Cove that were tilled by glaciers as recently as 1800. What the park's landscape might reveal in terms of wildlife at any one moment is hard to predict. Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve is home to several wolf packs, some wolverines, brown bears, black bears, mountain goats, and a birder's life list of feathered creatures, big and small. But predicting when any of those creatures might appear is impossible. Also hard to know is when whales, humpback, minke, and killer whales all have been sighted in the park's waters, might rise to the surface. Harbor seals and sea otters, however, are frequently seen, and the birds seem to be everywhere, overhead, on the water, in the trees. One day, after beaching our boats, we walked Dundas River, which really isn't much larger than a creek. My eyes nervously flicked back and forth across the shores and into alder thickets, searching for bears, while my ears strained to pick up any sound not tied to the winds, creaking trees, the rolling stream, or birds. In this tiny interface, where a rivulet from the vast interior feeds an equally, even unimaginably, vast entrance to the sea, the immensity of this natural world, and our experience of it, seems suddenly graspable. No longer simply another name among the more than 400 units of the National Park System or a far-flung dot on the map, Glacier Bay National Park has come to life. Though we might never get back, it was an adventure we'll never forget. One that showcased, even if only for a week, a trip of a lifetime. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll have a special guest to discuss some of the ultimate backpack treks in the National Park System. For the traveler... This is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.